Oh, he yes, you can hear. Great. Okay, continue. All right. All right. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Um, and then so I was talking about people who say they have no trouble swallowing, but might have the chronic cough or the sore throat or the voice changes. That may be a signal of acid reflux problems. So that's a decision the provider makes if they want to just start treating reflux and see if that helps. Um, if you want to refer to gastroenterology, as we know in this valley, any specialist takes a long time. I believe the gastroenterologist, someone told me, were out about nine months for the initial referral. So something to think about. Um, but probably doesn't involve a speech language pathologist. If there's a raspy voice that's chronic, and you ask more questions about reflux, you definitely want to send the patient to ENT and um, and eventually they, you know, speech language pathology may be indicated possible for the voice. And trouble swallowing pills only. How many of you have trouble swallowing pills? I wish I could see the nods. Yes, I see some in this room. Um, it's very common. It's normal. Many people have trouble swallowing pills. I will give you some tips on that, but if that's the only problem, you don't have a swallow problem. You have a normal swallow, a variant of a normal swallow, which is difficulty swallowing pills, especially the big ones. I'll, I'll give you some ideas about that later. And then decision-making guidelines, you can think about the diagnosis of the patient. So if they've had a stroke or a brain injury or one of those neurological diagnoses I have up there and they're complaining of swallowing, then yes, probably need an instrumental exam because it's more likely that they have probably an oropharyngeal problem. Head and neck cancer, yes. Pneumonia, COPD, other significant respiratory conditions does put a person at risk for swallow problems. People with with COPD, actually, they carry their larynx lower than others, and so um, it has further to go to lift to close the airway. There's been a lot of research on the, this population, and it's kind of interesting to see that a lot of the COPD exacerbations could relate to aspiration. So the swallow disorders sometimes, I think, are underdiagnosed in those populations, so they are high risk. Um, Post-cervical surgery, so for example, ACDF, um, anterior cervical discectomy and fusion, we do see those patients um, because of swelling issues and also the presence of hardware in their throat. So we would need an instrumental exam and MBS. Um, injuries or paralysis, um, paresis in the head and neck areas, that's very likely um, something going on here if they're complaining of swallowing as well. Um, again, acid reflux only? Probably not. So probably maybe the swallow, the feeling of a lump when they swallow. If the throat is uncomfortable, it hurts more when they swallow. So that may just be a reflux issue. So a couple example scenarios. Hopefully this will help you think through. Patient comes in, no neurological history. Sporadically, food gets stuck in the throat. Usually they'll point here. If someone says they're choking, I ask them, tell me, okay, so what does it mean when you're choking? People say that word and mean different things. Um, often it means something stuck. In fact, I often ask people, I say, well, when this happens, can you say, oh, it's happening again? Or 
excuse me, I have to leave the table, or you can tell someone you're choking. And if they say, oh yeah, I can say that, then well, then you're not probably not choking because your airway is open then. So that actually relieves some of the stress that they have. Um, but if it's, it's, so it's sporadic, they have um, no trouble swallowing liquids, it's just food. Most difficulty with meat, bread, other dry foods, it gets lodged, it clears with time or washing down with liquid. They deny any sensation of anything going down the wrong pipe. Um, usually it's esophageal. So that would probably be a referral for maybe an esophagram or maybe a GI referral. Then we have the history, the patient with the history of a stroke. Liquid frequently goes down the wrong pipe. They might have a positive respiratory history like pneumonia, COPD, exacerbation. So they may be at risk for having oral pharyngeal dysphagia and referral, um, consider referral to a modified barium swallow with a speech language pathologist. Right. Here we go. So just to, to um, if there's any mystery in what we do with swallow therapy, we do a lot of education. You know, what is normal swallowing? How does it look? How does it function? How does that compare to your swallow? We video these studies so we can show the patients. I always show the patient and the family right after the study, unless I'm really short of time, then I'll show them later at some point. Um, we, during the study, we try different strategies and positional adjustments and swallow maneuvers to see if they work. Um, so there's, and then in therapy, we may be teaching these maneuvers and also direct exercises for the swallow musculature unless it's some kind of neurological condition that that's contraindicated or that fatigues the muscle. Um, I put a caution that one size does not fit all, and I just like everyone to think about this for a moment. Um, I'm happy to know that people over the years have become aware of swallow problems and they, they've heard some of the techniques that work for people and they suggest them. I mean, I would be glad if my provider gave me a suggestion. However, use caution because some of these suggestions actually can make the problem worse. So for example, thickening liquids. That used to be the be all end all, also with speech pathologists, just thicken your liquids and you'll be fine. Thickening liquids is helpful in some cases with certain kind of swallow problems, mostly when the swallow is delayed, which means the airway is open for longer than it should be. So the bolus gets to the open airway before the swallow initiates to close the airway. If you thicken the liquid, it moves more slowly and it gives the body a chance to close the airway before it gets there. So that would be one case where it might be helpful. However, there's other cases where it's the opposite. It makes it worse. So someone with a lot of residue in their pharynx, and what's popping to mind is maybe a head and neck cancer patient or also a lot of stroke and brain injury patients. They can't, they don't have the driving force of the base of the tongue to the back wall of the throat to push the bolus through. So they have a lot of residue. If you now increase the texture, the viscosity to a thickened liquid, they have more residue. The problem with residue besides being uncomfortable is after we swallow, we open the airway and that residue in the pharynx can fall in the open airway. So that can be more dangerous. 
A tin tuck sounds like, well, a tin tuck, no problem. I'm going to do a tin tuck. Take a sip, keep your tin down through the duration of the swallow. It can protect airway or help airway closure with some people, but for others, it can increase aspiration. I've seen it many times. I and my colleagues and the people who do research, we try it on video fluoroscopy. Tuck your tin. Oh my gosh, all the liquid went right down into the trachea. That's not appropriate for you. So just be careful. Know that it's not one size fits all. Swallowing pills, this will be in your handout, one of your handouts. So this could be for anyone. Try this if you have trouble, even with one pill, you might have a big vitamin. That's usually what it is. People say, or their potassium pill, and it just gets stuck. So there's a space between the tongue base and the epiglottis, and that's called the vollecula. And it's about, looks about like this. So a big pill can get kind of lodged in there, especially if it's sort of turned sideways. I see Linda making a face over there. Yeah, that doesn't feel good. People say get stuck. So a chin tuck can open that space. So put your pill in your mouth, tuck your chin. It seems counterintuitive. Everyone wants to put their head back when they take a pill. The only thing that that does is bring the pill from the front of the mouth to the back of the mouth. But generally, think about CPR, open the airway. We generally don't want people to bend back when they're swallowing, usually, it depends. Um, so I have some ideas on here. So if it's something that can be crushed, and I always say, check with your doctor, nurse, pharmacist, um, or can be cut, they do have to check. If they can't be, you can mix it in applesauce, yogurt, pudding, or you can put the whole pill in that. And it just, it makes the bolus go down differently. Um, you can also, especially for people with head and neck cancer who've had radiation, who are very dry, if you coat the pill with butter or oil, like olive oil or your favorite oil, uh, avocado oil, whatever, um, that helps it slip through and it doesn't get stuck on the mucosa. You can try a combination. Try to oil it up and tuck your chin. So these are things that you can let your, your patients know about if they have pill swallowing problems. So I decided to include this slide because the ear, nose, and throat doctor is very much indicated in a lot of situations. So um, chronic cough and throat clearing can result from things like acid reflux, but it also can really, it's phonotraumatic. Um, phonotrauma, we call it, where the, the vocal cords are banging and rubbing every time the person clear, <coughs> every time they clear their throat or cough. So there can be damage of the um, vocal cords. There also could be a primary problem at the vocal cords that's causing some of the coughing and throat clearing. You wanna make sure they don't have some kind of you know, growth on the vocal cords. Um, and also when the ENT scopes, they can see if there has been chronic acid reflux, oftentimes they can see redness and or swelling at their arytenoids because the acid comes up high enough if they have a laryngopharyngeal reflux, meaning the acid's coming up all the way to the pharynx and starts to splash onto the vocal cords anteriorly. And it's going to get actually the posterior part of the vocal cords where they attach to the arytenoids because it comes up from the esophagus and splashes there. So an ENT actually might see that and say, oh, you have acid reflux, you should be on a meprazole. And they often prescribe that. Um, also, allergists might 
there might be allergies involved. So chronic cough, um, hoarseness, all of that can have a lot of causes. So cognitive disorders um, assessment and treatment. Um, Dr. Webb mentioned to me this is kind of a mystery to a lot of people. You know, what should I refer a patient for that? What can you do for this? Um, we can actually do a lot. And um, I'll give you a general overview. So if someone has a mild to moderate cognitive impairment, um, we can help them increase awareness of their strengths and weaknesses, for example, that we do with assessment at the beginning. We can instruct them in compensatory strategies to make them more functional despite the problems. So you, know, you have trouble with your memory or your attention or your problem solving or your reasoning. Well, this is how you can approach a situation to help you break, break down the tasks, do these strategies to um, increase your ability to focus and use techniques to help you remember. Um, we can also facilitate changes in, in the environment if they need things to cue them, to remind them. And even severe impairments. So even someone who has dementia, moderate to severe dementia, and you might think, well, what can you do about that? Obviously, we can't reverse the course of the dementia, but if you have a family coming in and the family is just trying to have their loved one in their home and they're, um, they don't know how to manage them, they're wandering, they can't find the bathroom, they can't keep any of the routines, they're having a lot of trouble, we can, or they're not talking to them. Because sometimes in the advanced stages of dementia, people get very quiet and now they can't have any kind of connection with their family. We can actually um, help with that. We can actually give a lot of strategies. So um, here's some examples. So um, I'll actually go to the dementia one since I was just talking about it, number three. So adult with moderate dementia, we might um, advise the family in environmental cues and supports. For example, in the kitchen, you can put little signs on the cabinet that say, spoons and forks, cups, plates. A lot of times when people with dementia, they're reading, at least at the word and maybe phrase level, their reading is preserved. So that can be helpful. If they're having language issues, you can have them bring in a photo album and we can put labels and it's amazing what happens where the patient will suddenly start going, oh, Here's where we went to San Francisco with Judy and Sam because they have some word cues on there and the family member is just ecstatic and they come back saying, oh my gosh, we had the best time talking about our photo album. Um, going back to number one, we might have another case where it's a 15 year old high school student who was playing sports and had a concussion. Now we're talking about how can you get back to school and be successful? What are what kind of strategies? Do you need accommodations? Um, oftentimes we're advising the family who to talk to. Make sure you talk to the principal, get some accommodations in place. If the teacher isn't on board, then you need to have a talk to the teacher. And also for the student to advocate for themselves. Um, and we guide them with that. And then of course, after stroke, traumatic brain injury, um, memory, attention, executive functioning, all of that um, direct treatment and then a lot of family education as well to support that. So I hope that helped. Um, and then I just wanted to touch on gender affirming voice and communication services. 
This is something I started offering um, at Providence in 2019. And the referrals have increased and um, it's really been a joy and really my honor to help people in their journey of um, really being able to express their gender, who they are. Um, and so the general idea is to assist people who are interested in changing their voices to better align with their gender. And I do want to at this point just say that this is really important to think about. Not everyone wants to change their voice. So you might have a patient who tells you they are transgender, um, non-binary, gender diverse, etc. Um, and you might notice, well, you said you're a transgender woman, but I notice a very deep voice and you don't sound like a woman. Perhaps that's the perception. Um, be careful about saying, oh, well, we could help you with your voice. Because maybe that person is very happy with their voice and doesn't want that. So you might want to say, um, is there anything else I can help you with in your, with your transition? Um, some things we don't offer, like we don't have electrolysis within Providence, but I think we could refer you or give you some ideas in the community. We do have voice and communication services and speech pathology. We do have et cetera, et cetera. Um, just put it out as an option, but be aware that because people don't know. Um, there is also a handout that will tell you a little bit about that as well. I also prefer to use the words client or participant um, rather than patient. Um, this is something um, speech pathologists are really careful about because we don't want to pathologize this. It's not a pathology to be transgender. You're transgender. That's what you are. This is not a pathology. It's not a disorder. So while you might call this person a patient because they're coming to you for their for their medical issues, um, I try to say more client or some people say participant. Um, the internalized, so someone who is trans or non-binary or gender diverse, um, their internalized gender does not match the sex that they were assigned at birth. That is the basic. Um, the voice could be a very significant source of stress. So the people who do come to see me many times say, I hate my voice. I ask them, is gender dysphoria? Can I put that down as a diagnosis? Because it's really not another diagnosis we can put down. And oftentimes they'll say, the only thing that makes me dysphoric is my voice. Or there are a lot of safety issues. As we know, there are a lot of people who want to inflict harm want to hurt, want to murder people who are trans or non-binary. The, and the suicide rate um, of people who are trans and non-binary is extremely high. So there are safety issues. If someone is presenting um, their appearance, their outward appearance as a woman, and their voice is very deep, and that outs them to someone as trans, and that person is not a very nice person towards, you know, they're transphobic, I'll say. Um, that might be a safety issue. Um, pretty much on here, I've already said all, but at the bottom, I just want to mention, it's really important if you are, and, and all of us are, um, caring for people who are trans and non-binary, gender diverse. Uh, we all are. We don't know who we have in front of us. So cultural humility, humility training is really important, and there's an excellent if you have access to MedBridge, there's an excellent one. It's called Transgender um, Culture of Humility with Transgender and Non-Binary People. I think that's the whole one. I can't see the whole thing. Um, 
but it's it's on Medbridge. It's an hour and a half, but you can do it in parts, and it's excellent. I highly recommend that. So just to let you know, the general goal for many people is to express their genuine selves when they're speaking, whatever that means to the person. Um, a course that I took that really sat with me, the way the presenter said, she compared it to um, taking an Uber to take you places. And she said, as she looked in the, in the screen, it was a virtual course, and she said, let's be... Let's all understand this. We are, this is not our journey. We are the Uber driver. We take the person where they want to go. So that's really important. Um, it's not my job to say, oh, you should sound like this, because then you will sound like a girl, for example, for the transgender woman. Um, they get to discover what they can do with their vocal instrument and decide what's right for them. And so every training program is individualized. It may include feminization, masculinization, neutralization of voice. It could involve changing pitch, resonance, intonation, even nonverbal communication. If a person wants that, you know, how we sit, how we move our hands, how we walk, um, that gets a little have to be a little careful with that. There are a lot of uh, stereotypes there, and most of the time people aren't really too interested in that, actually. Oh, I guess that's it. So um, I'm open to answering questions. I hope I didn't talk too fast, and there will be some supporting handouts. Thank you, Julie. That was uh, really interesting. Uh, I have a few questions. Okay. Uh, so I'm not, uh, or haven't been familiar with the fiber optic endoscopic mm -hmm. evaluation of swallowing. Could you describe how that is done? Yeah, I can describe it in general because I haven't been trained, but I've definitely seen it. I know about it. So what happens is um, it's you use a fiber optic end endoscopic scope, and um, just like you would do at the ENT office. So the speech pathologist is trained to do this and they have to do a lot of practice to get um, after they have that's part of their training and they have to um, have an ENT observe them for some of that training. And so what they do is they put the scope in the nose and it goes down. There's a camera at the end and it's looking at the vocal cords. And then so it's not has nothing to do with X-ray. You just do a scope. You can do this at the bedside. And um, you view the vocal folds and the pharynx and the tongue base and the epiglottis. Those are the main things that you can view. And you feed the patient. Or you might just actually first look at saliva pooling. These are things that we can't see saliva on modified barium swallow. You can see that on bees. They can see the vocal cords. So if there is something that looks really unusual, it might be, oh, we need to get you to ENT. They can see aspiration and pooling with the liquid. Um, I believe sometimes they might, I don't know if they still do this, they might use some food coloring and things to show up. So it might green food coloring so you can tell um, that it's not tissue. So it's a direct look at the swallow from the inside. Um, you don't see the full tongue movement. You don't see really the palatal movement. Um, it's a different view than modified barium swallow. So um, for some people, it might be that both exams are useful. For other people, like in the hospital, they might be too sick to go into x-ray. They might be too large to fit in the space, <clears throat> excuse me, that we view for x-ray. 
Um, they might have chronic cough and a lot of secretion issues where we want to look at that. So that would be. That's how that works. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Thank uh, you for the question. I have a few for you, so. My, my next one is, mm -hmm. um, you know, a number of our patients are homebound and they can receive some uh, speech and language uh, treatment and evaluations at home. But mm -hmm. uh, what are the limitations of home health speech and language therapy? Um, well, I'll, first I'll tell you the benefits. There are a lot of benefits is that the person's in their home environment. So if you have someone who has cognitive problems, wouldn't it be great to actually be in the house and help them modify the environment so this person can function better and actually have those people there and those rooms there and, and the drawers there that they have to go into, you know, all of their routine. So there's a lot of benefits. Um, if they, like, for example, if a person has swallow problems, they can have a like a bedside assessment, a clinical assessment. If the speech pathologist thinks they need an instrumental exam, they can refer them for that. So they can still be on home health services and come in for a modified barium swallow. And then the report, I always make sure that I communicate directly with the speech pathologist who's treating the patient, and then they have that information and they can continue. Um, so really, I mean, there are a lot of benefits. I, I don't know. Even now for a while, if there's a service that they can't provide in home health, then we can provide it. So in the past, maybe um, augmentative communication with speech devices was something they just didn't have training in and they didn't have the equipment. So sometimes those people would come in, but now they do have training and equipment. So that's not really an issue. It's a lot easier if you have ALS and it's very difficult for the family to get you in and for the patient themselves, it's so much better to do it in the home. And if you're already going to be in bed, set the speech device up on a stand that rolls by the bedside. So I, I hope that I answered that question. Yeah. Okay. Sounds like you can do most things other than the studies at uh, diagnostic imaging. Yeah. Yeah, I would say so. Um, and then for uh, you know primary care, we have a number of patients with cognitive impairment. Yeah. Uh, dementia. Mm -hmm. Should we refer? all of those or how do we decide um, who would yeah. benefit or and do you have capacity if we refer to everyone? Right. Well, okay, capacity. Um, it's hard for me to know at the moment because we have a little, um, we've had a lot of changeover with our um, ROAs and also apparently there, the people who do the scheduling in Portland, there's been some changeover. So there's, there's a little bit of a, a a backlog of referrals that aren't really matching. The, I'm not really sure how many people are waiting who haven't been scheduled, who probably should have been scheduled. Um, but I now have a colleague. I didn't have a colleague for over a year, so I have a colleague. So that makes it much better. There's two of us in outpatient now. Um, but as far as making a decision, I would say, you know, it's always about listening to the patient and listening to the family in the case of a patient of significant cognitive impairment. Um, is the family saying to you, you know, we can't get this person into um, a memory care. We can't afford it. We, um, it's not, or, or that's not what we want in our family, but oh my gosh, this is so hard. We are just all stressed out. We're arguing. We don't know how to help 
this person. So if you think that, you know, if you met with a speech pathologist, maybe they could give you some ideas. Maybe there are some um, techniques. Maybe there are, there's, I didn't mention errorless learning, but there's actually a teaching method that you can teach someone with at least moderate cognitive impairment, new tasks, even to use something on a cell phone sometimes um, by the certain learning method. Um, and I can teach the family how to do that. It's not that they have to come a lot of times. So as far as capacity goes, we may not see them many times. We may guide them, try this, and now we'll see you back in a few weeks. We'll see you in a month. Maybe we'll see them just a few times. Um, so basically listen to the family. If they're really showing they have a need, then refer or ask me about it. Right. Mm -hmm. uh and one more question yeah. I was curious about uh, is uh, someone with laryngospasm. Mm -hmm. I'm imagining there's something you can help them with. So can you give me a little more information? Are you talking about someone who might have acid reflux who's having laryngospasm? I've seen a few patients over the years who um, you know, they'll suddenly say, I'm choking, I can't breathe. Mm -hmm. They may even pass out. Mm -hmm. uh, and then they're terrified that mm -hmm. they're going to uh, stop breathing. And yeah. Come to. That's a, it's a little bit of a, um, a complicated question, but there's a lot of variables. So I would be asking questions to see if there seems to be acid reflux that might be, you know, what's causing the laryngospasm. Um, if there's a chance that it's acid reflux, of course, go that route. GI, acid reflux medication, see if that helps. Um, if there's paradoxical vocal fold motion, meaning instead of the vocal cords opening to breathe, they close to breathe. Um, instead of closing and starting to vibrate when we talk, they kind of go open. They do the opposite. That's called vocal cord dysfunction or paradoxical vocal fold movement. There are things that speech pathologists can get involved with. So oftentimes people who have laryngospasm or have suddenly, I suddenly I can't talk and I can't breathe. Sometimes they go to allergy and they go to gastroenterology and pulmonology and eventually speech language pathology. So oftentimes it's multifactorial. Um, I'd also consider ENT as well. Right. Yes. Mm -hmm. See any other questions? Huh? Yeah, but that's okay. That's, nothing you've always wanted to know about a speech language pathologist <laughs> that's kept you up at night. <laughs> uh, like we talked about mm -hmm. earlier, my mother having been a, mm -hmm. a speech therapist in the school. Yeah. I know what she did, and it's yeah. Uh, but even though I've been practicing a long time, I didn't know everything that mm -hmm. um, you and your colleagues yeah. do. So thank you for educating us on that. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, and uh, thank you, everyone. Uh, there's no further questions. I think we'll okay. end and see you next month. Thank you. All right. Thanks, everybody.